All right. Um, well, let's open up again to Matthew chapter 28. Um, and uh, Matthew 28. And we're going to jump, jump right in this morning. So after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus calls a final meeting between him and his disciples. In Matthew 28, verse 16, it says this. Now, the 11 disciples... We'll just pause right there. The 11 disciples. Why, what happened? I thought it was 12. Judas. What happened? He killed himself. Absolutely. But I thought he was one of them. You know what's an interesting observation is that no one else knew. Nobody knew that he actually wasn't one of them. And that is actually, this is, this is, this is, I think terrifying and very sobering because there was 12 and now there's, now there's only 11. And so think about the people even sitting in this room. Man, I want to believe that each and every one of us knows him. But sometimes we, we can't tell the difference. God can. It ought to be sobering to us when we read that there's now 11 but there was 12 because nobody else could tell the difference. And so there's always a room to ask God, Am I, do I belong to you? And it's also very sobering to us is that just because you're here does not make you a child of God. And we'll talk about a little bit later what makes us a child of God, but just because you're here and you're a tender does not make you one of God's. That is sobering. That is sobering. We'll circle back around to that in a little bit. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Let's just take a minute in verse 17. That's what we're going to talk, primarily what we're going to be talking about this morning. Is verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. We're going to talk about worship, and we're going to talk about doubt this morning. Um, let's look at this. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped. Th think with me for a minute. They saw Jesus. They saw Jesus perform miracles. They, they heard his, his teaching. They saw him heal crippled people. They saw him open the eyes of the blind. They saw him walk on water. They saw the authority that he had over demons. And now they're looking at the risen Jesus. Not only did they see him perform miracles, they saw him die. They knew he was dead. And now, now they see him alive. He's not dead anymore. He is, he is alive. He is living and breathing and they're looking at him and they worship him. And this might sound heretical, but they worshiped a man. They worshiped a living, breathing human being. And it almost sounds wrong to say that, doesn't it? Because they recognized at his resurrection, he's not just a man. He's not just a human being. Though he is like us, he is not like us. They recognized him as the risen son of God. Romans chapter 1 says that um, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. 
They heard the declaration that this is the Son of God and they worshiped him because they recognized he is the God-man. And man, it would make it an awesome story to say they worshiped him and then he sent them out. He sent them out to go and tell the world that he is the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the risen one. That would make for a great story. But then all of a sudden there's this like speed bump there. Like boom. But some, but some doubted, it says. But some doubted. Um, it doesn't say what they doubted about. It doesn't expressly say who doubted. We know the 11 were there. there. We have good reason to think there was actually a lot more than just the 11. What's interesting to note that they all worshiped, but some, but, some, but some doubted. I mean, we have to believe that that would include some of the 11 also doubted. Some of his own disciples who are looking at him right now, the living, breathing, r- resurrected Jesus, and they're experiencing some kind of doubt about something. And Matthew doesn't give us doesn't exactly tell us what was going on. It's interesting that all of, the, um, all of the gospels end with some kind of reference to doubt, including John, uh, which referenced uh, doubting Thomas. The irony is not wasted on me that a guy named Thomas is teaching on doubt today. Um, but Luke gives us probably one of the best hints of what was going on. And so I want to turn to Luke, Luke 24. And so here are the disciples, they're huddled together in a little room. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them. Luke says this, Luke 24, verse 36. As they were uh, talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. Which is another way of saying, hey guys, don't freak out. Um, he says, but they, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. In other words, it's like, I don't know what I'm looking at right now. I don't know what is happening. In verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled and why do, uh, why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when, uh, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. I love, just pause right there. I love his response to their doubt was to show him, was to show them himself. His response to their doubt was essentially to say, hey, look, go ahead, look at me, guys. Look at me. Take a good look. Verse 41 And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. You know, I worked over that sentence over and over again, and I'm like, what is happening? They disbelieved for joy and were marveling. There's there's an, an unbelief about what is going on. What is happening right now? And yet there's excitement and a thrill, and I don't even know what to do with all of this mixed emotions and things that are going on. And Jesus says to them, he says, hey, hey, you guys got anything to eat? (laughs) They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Uh, My grandma loved to cook food for us, um, and then afterwards she cooked for us. She would sit at the table and just watch us. 
Um, it was a very uncomfortable thing. <laughs> That's a little bit of what I imagine was happening as he's like, he said he's not a spirit. And they're just sitting at the table like watching him eat his fish. Like, he's like, guys, it's me. I'm alive. It's okay. Well, the next thing that Jesus does, I think is so important. Verse 44, this is what Jesus does. His response to their doubt. He says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, uh, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name um, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Here's what I think was going on, guys. It's the disciples had all kinds of expectations of what the Messiah was gonna be like. They had in their minds a story, a narrative of how they thought the Messiah was gonna play out. They spent their whole lives looking and hearing stories about the, what the Messiah was gonna do and what was gonna happen. And so when Jesus shows up, they hear his teaching. He calls them to follow him. They hear, they see his miracles. They embrace him as the Messiah. But their expectations of what the Messiah was gonna do were vastly different. Not, well, were a lot different, at least to how it was gonna end was a lot different. You see, their expectations did not include a crucified and dead Messiah. It did not include now a risen Messiah. And now the story that they had in their head of what the Messiah was going to look like and live like and what he was going to accomplish, how he, you know, this idea that he was going to bring about peace and deliver them from Roman oppression. And then seeing the way it played out in life, the actual story of the Messiah played out right in front of them. There's two different things, two different stories, narratives going on, and they're trying to make sense of all this. It's like, I don't know what to do with what I thought and what I see and what is happening. And here's what's so cool. is the way that Jesus comforts them, the way that Jesus encourages them with all of the confusion and now doubt that they're experiencing is he says to them, look at me. Look at me. Touch, touch my hands and my feet. Not only does he say, look at me, let's, he says, let's go back to the Bible and let me explain to you about the things that you've seen. Let me give you a different story to have in your head to help you interpret the things that you've seen. Because if you got the wrong story in your head, then you're gonna misinterpret the things that you see. You're gonna have a hard time working out what's playing out in front of you. And I love that. You know, doubt arises Doubt arises when we, when we hear what God says, when we hear the words of God, and then we look out on life, and we feel like there's a conflict going on. We feel like, I don't know what to do with what God says over here and what I'm seeing playing out in life. And life is so complicated, and the world in which we live in is so broken that, yes, 
At times it is very difficult to understand what God is doing and why things are playing out the way they're playing out. We can embrace that God is totally in control and that he's good and yet look out in the world and wonder, is he really good? Is he really in control? You see, they had in their minds a story and an expectation of what the Messiah was going to be like and it contradicted how things actually played out, the true story of the Messiah. And there's this wrestle between two different stories, two different um, views, two different words going on in their head. I'll just say this, doubt arises when we have a conflicting story going on, either inside of us or a conflicting story going on out there in the world. Make no mistake about it, our culture has a conflicting story with God's word about all kinds of things. I mean, a real easy one to pick on is, is to say our culture says to us that we all came from nothing and the conclusion is life therefore has no ultimate meaning. That, that is a direct contradiction to what God said. It is a competing story. Uh, there are competing stories in the world about why why the world is the way it is and why it is broken. Typically speaking, we all agree that it's broken. We can't all agree on why it's broken. God's word has an explanation of why the things are the way they are. And that story conflicts with what our culture tells us. We can have a complete, uh, 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 life circumstances can, can cause doubt to rise up in our heart. I'll give you a real concrete example. Um, I remember after... Um, now, most of you guys know we were missionaries uh, among a people group called the Nagi. Shortly after the church was born, uh, one of our most zealous believers, a fellow by the name of Yopi, I mean, this dude was like on fire, man, like um, was so excited about the word of God. And shortly after the church was born, his son got sick. His son was about four years old, I think three or four years old, um, and ultimately ended up dying. And I remember watching Yopi, I remember one incident where Yopi, a brand new believer, new to the word of God, reading about a God who cares and a God who answers prayer. And uh, I remember his son, uh, hearing about his son being sick and some of my other coworkers were with him and they said, well, why don't we just pray? And Yopi got down and he was asking God to heal his son and he got up after praying. He said, amen. It was almost like we asked. He's, he's good. He's in control. And then he's looking over his son. Did it work? Did it happen? Is he doing it? And he was trying to make sense of, I don't understand why it is we asked. Why is he not better? What's going on? You see, what he was seeing out there and what God's word seemed to say, he was like, I don't know, I don't know how to put these pieces together and explain what it is that I'm, I'm seeing. I remember um, when we first arrived in Indonesia and having to learn uh, language one of the things that we had to do is not just learn one language, we had to learn two languages, right? That's part of being a missionary. If you wanna communicate, you gotta, gotta be able to speak the language. And the thing that I wrestled with the most is if God called us to be missionaries, why in the world would he make me such a terrible language learner? <laughs> I mean, I, I wrestled with that. We were there 11 years and I wrestled for it for 11 years. I mean, it was like, Wait, that's not what I would do. That's not, why would you do that? And yeah, I'm serious. It was such a wrestle with like, this is cruel. I remember thinking that. 
this topic of doubt, whatever it might be, is so broad. It can be doubting the existence of God, doubting the word of God, doubting the goodness of God, doubting how things played out, doubting how, questioning how God did things. Um, so broad. Uh, I do believe the answer is the same. But this morning, I want to specifically focus on, with the remainder of our time, look at doubt and the commission. Because in the context in which this doubting occurred, it was at the very moment that he was sending them out into the world to say, as you go and you make disciples and you um, uh, baptize these disciples and teach them to obey, at that very moment that he was commissioning them, they were experiencing doubt. And so I want to bring it back around to that. Um, And that's kind of going to be our lane this morning, is doubt as it relates to what God has called us to do in the great commission. Um, one of the things I've shared with you before is, um, for me, I, I, have, <laughs> I have wrestled over and over again with this lingering doubt, can God really use me in any kind of meaningful way in making disciples? Um, I wrestled with that before we were missionaries. I wrestled with that when we left the mission field, and I, I man, I wrestle with that even today. Um, for some of you, it's not necessarily a question of can God use me, but it, is it really worth it? Is it worth it for me? The question you, you ask yourself is, I like my life. Being a part of making disciples or investing your, your life into the lives, investing in the lives of other people is going to come with a cost. And Jesus actually, he said that. And the question in your mind, is it really worth it? For some of you, it may even be, no, I I, I was a part of making divi- uh, disciples. I invested my life into a small group or a particular ministry, and man, I got burned really bad. And now the question you ask yourself, is it worth doing again? Is it worth starting over? Is it worth investing yourself with the potential that you can get hurt? And those are legit doubts and questions that we all have. And I'll just say this, just to make sure we're clear, when I say doubt, we're not talking about um, a suppression of truth or a rejection of what God said. It is an honest question of I don't know what to do and I'm wrestling with God, I'm wrestling with his word and I'm wrestling with what is going on in life. So I, I love... Um, what we see in Matthew 28. I love that Matthew let us know that at the very moment when God was, Jesus was commissioning them that they were experiencing doubt. There's so much comfort in that. Um, Because even they, as they were looking at the risen Jesus, were experiencing some kind of some kind of doubt. These were some of the most faithful men and faithful followers of Jesus, and yet they were experiencing doubt. These faithful followers of Jesus, at least among the 11, if church history is correct, um, 10 out of 11 of them would die as martyrs. Some of these doubters would give their life for the name of Jesus for the sake of the gospel. That is so encouraging me, so encouraging to me to know that because you know what it tells me? That Jesus was able to overcome their doubt and his disciples were not paralyzed by doubt. And that encourages me because it tells me that Jesus, man, he can, he can 
strengthen me in the midst of doubt to not be paralyzed by doubt that I can still be a part of what he's called me to do, even though, man, I got all kinds of wrestles going on in my, my heart. So how does Jesus respond to their, to their doubt? What was Jesus' response? And we kind of already saw this in the book of Luke, but now back in Matthew, he says this. If you see in yellow there, there in the white, there is what God told him to do. As you go, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy, um, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that, all that I have commanded you. That's what he's telling them. Sandwiched between those two, that, that commission it's a declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus' response to them was this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I, even I. The first part is a declaration of his greatness. This is who I am. Listen, I have all authority over all things. I am in control. There is nothing that you will experience or face that is outside of my control. I am sovereign over all things. It's a declaration of his greatness, but then he gives a declaration of his goodness. He says, I, which I love how Todd brought that out, which actually in Greek it's I, even, even I am with you. And I love that it's not even I will be with you, it's I am with you. Always, I will, I will never leave you. I'm with you and I'm not going anywhere. It's a declaration of his goodness. So how did Jesus respond to their doubt? He talked about himself. Jesus responded to their doubt by talking about himself. I love how last, last week um, Christian Focused on that word behold, that attention grabber, that, that hey, don't miss this. Look at this. This is the important thing. It's kind of like, you know, when your kids aren't paying attention, you're like, hey, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I got, hey, hey, hey. You grab your kid by the face, you know, and say, hey, I got something to say here. I heard a message by uh, um, Paul Washer on this, on this passage, and he paraphrased behold as look at me. And I loved it, so I'm going to borrow it this morning. When Jesus, essentially what he does here is he takes hold of the disciples and he says, look, look at me, look at me. And Jesus today still says to you with all of your questions, all of your wrestles, he says, look, look at me, look at me. This morning as I was preparing, I thought of uh, I thought of that, you remember that story when, when um, Jesus walks on the water, you know, the disciples are out on the boat by themselves and the boat is getting thrashed and all of a sudden Jesus comes walking to them on the water and the disciples, they're like, oh no, it's a ghost. Apparently this is a running theme with them that every time Jesus showed up, they thought, oh, it's a ghost. Um, but Jesus shows up, they're like, hey, it's a ghost. And, and Jesus says, no, it's, it's me, it's me. And Peter says, if you command me to walk on the water and come to you, and he says, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water. And then what does it say? It says, he saw the winds and the waves and he sunk. He took his eyes off of Jesus. Um, and what does Jesus say? He says, why are you, why are you so, so, he has so little faith. Why did you, why did you doubt? Man, just keep, should just keep looking at me. Keep looking at me when you saw the waves and you, and you felt the wind, just, just keep looking at me. Keep looking at me. 
I want to uh, um, go with you to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter six. And the reason why we're gonna go here and look at Isaiah chapter six is I want us to look at a time when God called Isaiah to be a prophet. And here's the connection between these two passages. We have in, in Matthew 28, we have Jesus calling, commissioning the de- this, this declaration of, hey, look at me with all of your, your doubt and your reservations or whatever it is. Look at me. Keep looking at me. And we have in Isaiah 6 an, a, a moment In the very moment when God was calling Isaiah to be a prophet, to speak on his behalf, Isaiah is crushed with the realities of his own failures and his own, um, what he calls, uncleanness. And God essentially takes Isaiah by the face and says, look at me. Get a good look at me, Isaiah. Now, I want to go there with you. Um, Isaiah chapter 6. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Those are are angels. Um, Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, um, excuse me, his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled of his glory. Amen. Amen. And what is Isaiah's response? And I'll just say this before I I move on real quick. Here's what's happening here. Isaiah, he's, he's, he's working and doing a job in the temple and he gets this, this vision, this peak into heaven and it says, there's this reference marker. It says, this took place in the year that King Uzziah died. And the point of that is, in the year that I saw a king die, I saw the king seated on a throne. And, 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 and on this throne, there's these angels flying around him. And they got six wings. And with two, they cover their face. And two, they cover their feet. And two, they're flying. And they're flying around. And they're saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That proclamation is to say, there is no one like you. There is no one like you. There's no one like you. The word holy also means you are pure. You are, you are pure. There's nothing unclean about you. You are perfect. Everything about you is perfect. And that's what Isaiah sees. You think, well, that would be so encouraging. That would be so like, man, thrilling. In his response, he says, and the foundations, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His response to seeing God was absolute terror. His expectation was, I am done. Or some of your translations say, I'm undone. Or they'll say, I'm doomed. His expectation was, I'm dead. I'm looking at God. This is over. Why? Because he recognized that God was holy. God was good. God was just. God was righteous. 
And he's saying, I'm none of those things. It would be right and good for him to end me right now. That was his experience. And what's so interesting is remember, this moment is the moment when God is calling him to be a prophet calling him to speak on his behalf and his response is to say, I am a man of unclean lips. If you're looking for a prophet, you're gonna have to find somebody else because not these lips, not from this mouth, not from me. I can't speak on your behalf. I'm too fallen, I am too corrupt, I am unclean. And how does God respond? It says, then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for What is the significance of the coal coming from the altar? Well, the altar was the place where sacrifices took place, is where they they would do burnt offerings to the Lord. It was a means in which God had set up for his people in the Old Testament to, to be in a right relationship with him when they had sinned. They were to bring an offering, a sacrifice, an animal was to die in their place, not ultimately to wash away their sins, but just to cover it, just... Spoiler, it was all pointing to the final sacrifice, which is Jesus. And the fact that the coal came from the altar, it's the place of atonement. And God came, or God sent the angel, and it touched it to his lips. So now he's experiencing the forgiveness of of God, the grace of God. Not only is he seeing and experiencing God, it's huge, beyond him. He's also experiencing him as good and patient and forgiving and gracious. And even the fact that the angel came and put it to his lips, I think was to say there's more than forgiveness going on here, Isaiah, but I will burn away your uncleanness. I will change your lips. I will change your mouth and you'll not speak unclean things. You will speak of me and you will speak on my behalf. This was Isaiah's vision of the Lord, of both his greatness and his goodness, his graciousness. I just think of that, what's the term? Juxtaposition, that contrast between the holiness of God, the expectation of, no, it would be good and right for him to just get rid of me. But what God does is he comes down and he forgives him and even promises there in the imagery, I think, of I'm gonna change you. I'm gonna transform you. And Isaiah, after getting a good look at God and experiencing the fullness of God, the next thing he hears, he says, I heard a voice, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send, send me. How does he go from woe is me to send me? He saw God. He saw God in his fullness. He saw God in his greatness and he saw and experienced God in his goodness. So much so, 
that he didn't even ask, what, what, what comes next? What, what, is, what is signing up for this being sent? Have, what, what does that include? It's just this declaration that here I am. Just as I am, would you send me? I'll volunteer. I will go. I'll speak. And here's where, how does this intersect with Matthew, Matthew 28 and what we've been hearing about? Both God's response to Isaiah's, um, Isaiah's doubt, his reservations about himself, and the disciples' doubt are responded to by God or by Jesus in the same way. It's both God caused Isaiah to experience or to see his goodness and Jesus in the same way spoke of himself in saying to his disciples, hey, touch my hands, touch my feet. Um, look at me. Look at me. In both cases, it's the same. Look at me. I don't know what your doubt is and what your reservations are when it comes to the Great Commission and your part in that. But God says to you, look at me. And here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing. Is that we have a greater vantage point and a greater view of God than Isaiah. Look, look what Jesus says. Jesus said to his disciples, but blessed, uh, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets, that includes Isaiah, and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We have in the person of Jesus Christ a greater revelation of the greatness and the goodness of God. We have in him a better picture than the image, than the vision that Isaiah had. We have something greater in the revelation of Jesus. For Colossians says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, that he is the, the, the image of the invisible God. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. And this Jesus is calling us with all of our reservations and our doubts, and he says, look at me. Don't look away, look at me. And I know I've shared this with you guys over and over again. But I have an ongoing doubt that I wrestle with over and over. It is a battle and it is nagging and I wish it would just vanish. But I wrestle with it almost daily. And that is the question, can God really use me in a meaningful way? And I say that after 11 years of being a missionary, of being a part of church planning, of actually being a part of making disciples. And I could share with you cool stories of how God has used me here. And yet it lingers and goes on. And what do I do? I go back to look at Jesus. How do I see Jesus? It's not in a vision. I go back to the book because that's where we can see Jesus. We can see him in the pages of scriptures. And you know what I do? I open up to, to 2 Timothy. Let's see if I can find it here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 
And I read this to myself. This is what it says, who God, who saved us and, and called us to a holy calling. And I tell myself, no, God saved, God saved me. He chose to save me. And not only did he, did he save me, he called me to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Oh, God called me and he saved me, not because it's like, man, I, I've got everything. I've just got, I'm like the full package. And he's like, yes, you're the one I want. It's like, no, it wasn't based on that. It was because of my purpose and my grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. began excuse me. At other times, I'll open up to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, and I read this to myself. He says, he says fear not, Fear not, for I am with you. Oh, wow, that sounds a whole lot like what Jesus said to his disciples, isn't it? He says, he goes on, he says, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I can't tell you how many times I'm freaking out about life and circumstances, and I go back and I say, wait, 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 but who is my God? Who is my God? My God says, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand hand. And so I say to you, maybe your doubt isn't, hey, can God really use me? Maybe your doubt is, is it worth it? And to that I would say, look to Jesus. Keep looking at him. Maybe your doubt is something like, I don't, I don't know that I'm really, I don't feel loved by God. And that's a story that your heart is telling you, that you're not loved by God. We'll go back to a different story the story of Jesus, and look at the crucified Savior displaying his love and care for you. Look at that, Jesus. If your doubt is, I'm not sure this is worth it, I would say look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. Whatever your doubt is and whatever your wrestle is, don't look away from Jesus. Keep going back to Jesus. Open the book and look for Jesus and look to Jesus. This, this um, we started at the beginning of this by saying, and they saw him and they worshiped him. If you go back to the book and you look again and again at Jesus, when you see him, the overflow of that will be worship. And you'll begin where we started. You will respond with worship. And your doubts will not paralyze you from what God has called us to do because worship will carry you. And when doubt begins to rise again in your hearts, look again at Jesus until worship overflows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness. I thank you for, I thank you for the book. I thank you for the revelation of your son. I thank you for um, the kindness, the goodness that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the strength of Jesus. I thank you for the promise that you will keep us to the end and none of yours will be lost. We thank you, God. Would you cause us, when we doubt, 
to say, Lord, we, we do believe, would you help our unbelief? Would you help us? Would you carry us through our struggle? Lord, may we see Jesus and may our hearts overflow in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.